Hello, and welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about elements of the scriptures that have helped them become real to us because we believe that helps us draw more power out of them, and we need all the help we can get. I'm your host, Kerry Mulstein, and I'm happy to have with us a, a wonderful guest. You'll hear from him again when we do the Book of Revelation, but uh, a friend and colleague for a long time, Dr. Nick Frederick. Welcome, Nick. Thanks, Kerry. Appreciate having me on. Oh. So let me just tell you um, a little bit about Nick, and well, actually, we'll let him tell you mostly about himself, but uh, Nick, I'll say, is a, it teaches in the same department I do, the Ancient Scripture Department, uh, specializes, especially in teaching, at least, uh, doing second half of the New Testament and Book of Revelation, uh, all sorts of great stuff, and also the use of the Bible uh, in the Book of Mormon and other Restoration Scripture, uh, and has probably done more work on that than anyone I can think of. And it's, it's wonderful that uh, we have someone who's working on that. Uh, and I think it's great because clearly uh, the, the we see lots of concepts in the epistles that we've been covering uh, during this Come Follow Me year. We see echoes of that uh, all over the Restoration Scripture. So uh, what else should we know about you, Nick? Oh, um, my story's probably like a lot of, of your other guests. I grew up small town, Utah, um, wanted to learn more about the gospel and the church. And you know, I, I grew up in the church, um, came to BYU. Actually, I went to Rick's College first, had some really great experiences up in Rexburg, wonderful teachers who showed me that scripture study was more than just reading 15 minutes a day and, you know, marking certain verses in different colors and things like that, that there was a depth to the scriptures and I, I really, that d kind of developed in me this hunger to, to learn more. So I came to BYU uh, with the intent of really applying some of those lessons I learned up in Rexburg and uh, studying ancient Hebrew and Greek and Latin, taking history courses. I took every religion class I could get. I just wanted to understand the scriptures as, as deeply as I could. And I was lucky enough to uh, teach some classes as an adjunct for ancient scripture uh, back in about 2006, 2007, and I decided, hey, this would make a great career. And so um, Dennis Largi, who was the chair at the time, said, great, you have to have a PhD if you want to teach here. So I said, well, how do I do that? And uh, he said, well, um, there's a Mormon studies program out in Claremont, California, with the Richard Bushman, and he's Richard's going to be here on campus. You should talk to Richard. So I spent some time talking to Rich, Richard, and he invited me to apply for the Mormon studies program at Claremont. So I moved my family out to California, and it turned out to be uh, some of the best years of my life, just studying with Richard and some of the other professors at Claremont, meeting students of, of different faiths and getting their insights and perspectives on what scripture study was, what discipleship looked like. And I came back to BYU with the hopes of being able to teach here full time with people like you. And uh, my wish was granted. And Ten years later, here I am on your podcast. Oh, happy day. Wonderful. Thanks. Thank you. We're excited to have you. Um, before we dive in, we have a few announcements that we just need to make. Proud to announce that uh, this episode is being brought to you by Your Mental Wellness Coach. So this is a sponsor. We're hoping to have sponsors, uh, products, and people that I really believe in that help uh, bring the podcast to you. Uh, your, your Mental Wellness Coach. Uh, well, let me just say that mental wellness is something that means a lot to me. Uh, I've seen just with my own family, but also with uh, the youth that I work with and the young adults I work with as a, a teacher at BYU, uh, mental health challenges are uh, a pandemic. It's becoming huge, and this is becoming really, really an important issue to address. 
So your uh, mental wellness coach has uh, all sorts of things that she'll do. But in particular, we want to highlight uh, the way that she's uh, uh, partnered with um, in her efforts in mental wellness with uh, Amari, uh, the mental wellness company that uh, comes up with natural products that help uh, us produce what our brains need to produce our current diets and so on aren't doing what uh, giving us what we need and so you need a, a correct probiotic there are all sorts of probiotics they're only one that really helps your gut create what it needs most of the the chemicals that your brain needs to feel good and happy are actually created in your gut but our gut is usually a mess these days uh, so they've produced natural products uh, such uh, and there are three of them you put together when people put them together they call them happy juice uh, they they help you have a better mood be better, uh, more resilient, have better energy and motivation. Uh, these things really happen. I've seen them happen. I've seen miracles happen because of these things. In my opinion, miracles happen in the lives of people that I know as they uh, take these natural products that just help your, your gut, uh, which provides the chemicals for your brain, uh, help it function properly because we're not giving it, especially uh, youth and young adults typically aren't giving it what it needs to be able to help their brain function properly. So uh, if you want to uh, email at your mental wellness coach at gmail.com, uh, you can learn more about some of these products and that helps us. Uh, this episode is, is being produced and sponsored by your mental wellness coach at gmail.com. So now our, our text for today, and we'll see what we talk about. We don't have to talk about everything, but we're doing uh, the epistles of John, uh, which I'll say are some of my favorite. I think actually first John might be my favorite uh, epistle of all of them, although I like a lot of them a lot, but I really love first John um, and also Jude, which no one ever talks about. But, but anyway, uh, what, what, let's do it again. Is that in the Old Testament? Testament? <laughs> yeah, well, it's it, it's uh, it's in the apocrypha. Okay. Um, actually, there probably is something, but anyway. Okay. So uh, let's just go where you'd like us to go. What's made this become real for you? So um, for me, when I think of all four of these letters, as my, my a lot of my backgrounds in the history of Christianity, and these these letters reveal kind of a, a different level. Kind of as you know, if if you look at the letters of Paul, they're really first generation Christian problems. It's how does, how, how do Christians and Jews interact now? What is the role of the law of Moses? Um, do we, do we need to be circumcised in order to become disciples of Jesus Christ? Can we eat food offered to idols? And then you move on to about maybe the second generation of Christians. Maybe we get into the eighties or nineties or so, and it starts to be a different set of problems. And those problems seem to involve who is Jesus Christ? Right, it's been it's been a few decades since the crucifixion, and people are starting to ask, "Who was this guy?" Right, and was probably this... most of the apostles are yeah. gone by now, yeah. right? Yeah, by this point, I mean, it, pretty much during the '60s, we see we see the you know Peter's killed, Paul's killed, James is yeah. killed, and really John's the only one left, as far as right. we can tell, by the right. time we get to the '80s and '90s, and so we seem to start to have some conflict in the church over. Who is Jesus Christ? Is he human? Is he divine? How do those natures fit together? And so this this seems to be, the, the, these are the complications that provide the background for at least the letters of John. Uh, Jude's kind of having his own unique circumstance we can get to a little bit later. But the, 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 the issues seem to revolve around two particular questions. Uh, there's, a, there's a group known as, who become known as the Docetists, 
who start to teach that Jesus was just divine, but he wasn't actually human. He was kind of a, he was a visible God in a way you could see him, but he didn't actually have a, a body of flesh. Right. And this seems to be a reaction against the idea that a God could suffer. You can't nail God to a cross, right? It doesn't work that way. And so he must have only looked like he was God. He must have only appeared to be God. And dokeo in Greek means to appear or to seem like something. And so the docetist said, well, he just appeared to be a human being. And it's like if you were walking down the beach, right? And, you know, you're walking side by side with Jesus. You look behind you. There'd only be one set of footprints. And they would be your footprints. But Jesus wouldn't leave footprints because he was just a spirit. He wasn't actually a human being. There's a and new so, twist on the whole footprint uh, yes. in the sand thing, but yes. anyway, yeah, yeah. And I, I always get a kick when I see that meme because I'm like, I, there's actually there's actually a story behind that one, right? And it goes back to the Docetists, and so part of First John, what John is dealing with, is pushing back against people who want to deny that Jesus Christ was actually a human being, that he had a physical body that you could touch, um, because it, once you start to once you start to lose Jesus's humanity. What happens to something like Gethsemane, right? What happens to the crucifixion? Right. You know, if Jesus just seemed to go through those things. But he doesn't really suffer, doesn't really yeah. have that mortal experience. Yeah, exactly. And so there's this 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 other idea is kind of the flip side of that. And it's the idea that Jesus, if he did suffer, if he did, if he was crucified, if he did go through these things, then he must have just been human. Maybe he was inspired in some respect. Maybe God elevated him for a time, but he must have just been a human being. And so there's this this kind of rival teacher who emerges at the end of the first century known as Serenthus, and he's kind of portrayed as John's arch enemy. He's kind of the villain of the first century Christianity. There's this story that John goes into a bathhouse one day, and he sees Serenthus there, and he's like, we got to get out of here right before the ceiling falls in because Serenthus is here, you know, and he's, he's, he's the son of the devil and all this stuff. And so Serenthus seems to be the guy who's leading this charge and saying, look, Jesus was just a guy. And then at the baptism, when this dove descends upon Jesus, that's the Christ. That's this divine element that God sends down to merge with Jesus. And Jesus and the Christ are kind of this this pair that go through Jesus' ministry. And then you reach the crucifixion. And when Jesus is nailed to the cross, the Christ leaves and ascends back into heaven and jesus the man is killed and so john in first john we also see him attempting to deal with those who would say that jesus wasn't fully divine but again something you you can tell who jesus is through the blood and the water and the spirit right these tokens of his humanity and these tokens of his divinity we have to understand both of them in order to uh, in order to understand Jesus, and so John's kind of waging this war against these other theologians. At the same time, he's trying to keep his community together. He's got a community that's fracturing, and so First John is about maintaining orthodoxy while also picking up the pieces and making sure your community is unified. And we see that kind of in all three of these letters right here. Wonderful. So. Uh, I have a couple questions for you that uh, uh, if we decide not to entertain, then that's fine. But uh, for me, uh, one of the first one of these is where some things become very real for me. Uh, it's a question that uh, our our friend and colleague Dana Pike once posed to me and a couple of others who were sitting at a table. Uh, and he said, oh, so, so do we believe 
that Christ is fully divine. And he was talking about what other different other religious groups believe, right? And which of these do we believe? He says that he's fully divine and has a mortal experience. Or during mortality, he's fully mortal, but has a, a, a somewhat divine nature. And uh, and I thought about it. I didn't agree with either of those uh, positions and and uh, came up with uh, some other things. But anyway, uh, I, I would ask. So I, I what I'm trying to say with the, didn't agree with either of those is that I don't think those have to be our only two options. So uh, my question for you would be that question. What How, how would you answer that? that? That's a tough one. I mean, when I'm asked this by my students, my answer tends to be something like, He's a hundred percent divine and he's a hundred percent human. I just don't. That's exactly where I landed. Yeah. yeah, I mean, something about his experience on Earth allowed him to have the human experience in a way that doesn't compromise his divinity. Right. Right. And so this is where Hebrews is so wonderful because Hebrews emphasizes this evolution of Jesus. Right. He learned obedience right. through suffering. He was in all points tempted. Right. He grew like we grew. Right. But then Which we like, see reflected in section 93 as well, yeah, right? Exactly, right? He goes grace to grace and grace for grace. Right. But then, then, then the gospel of John is very clear on this. He is the word made flesh, right? He he is he is God. And in, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And that's who you encounter in the first century. If you were to meet Jesus on the street, the word made flesh, he is God among us. And so somehow both these these natures of the Savior, they interact in a way that gives him the human experience without compromising that divinity. At least that's how I see it. I, I, I agree. I think, I mean, we're not the ones who can proclaim what our, our dogma or our beliefs are, but um, I think he is fully divine and absolutely fully human during his mortal ministry. He uh, And that's part of what makes this become very real. I mean, he did leave a set of footprints. Uh, he, he had stomach aches, toothaches, probably lost teeth. Um, had uh, you know injuries or whatever else he uh, and the the suffering that he went through was physical and spiritual uh, in every way and uh, that's that I think that's an important part of our doctrine because for us that's part of how he's able to succor us is because he's and and how he's able to atone for us because he actually felt every single pain that you will ever feel or that I will feel or anything that anyone in Ukraine or Gaza is feeling right now or Southern Israel, uh, he has actually experienced all of that physically, not just uh, some detachable part of him. Yeah. Not like he just read a textbook on what it means to be human or something and picked yeah. up some pointers, right. And then tried to apply them. And this, this is where the book of Mormon really helps us out too. Something like Alma seven, right. As you right. say, it wasn't just that he paid for our sins. Somehow he, that Gethsemane experience also means he experiences our infirmities, right? Yeah. Our pains, our sufferings, everything it means to be human. Jesus experiences them just as much, if not more, right, than you or I. Yeah, and, and that's important for us, I think. So that's, but that's that's what's at issue as John is writing these letters, I think. So the yeah. second is a little less important, but I think worth exploring if we're going to do the epistles of John, which is timing-wise, we've got a lot of writings by John. We've got the, the if- so let's just always say, if the book of John is written by John, which, you know, there's all sorts of debates, but let's, I, I'm, I'm going to go with John. So if it's written by John, if the epistles are written by John, and if the book of Revelation is written by John, uh, which which comes first? And I know we can't actually tell, but I, can you just uh, kind of walk us through how we might think about that? 
Yeah, sure. So uh, the book of Revelation is maybe the easiest one to, to tackle here. There's the two dates that are suggested for the book of Revelation, um, because it seems to be written during a period of persecution, is either the 60s or the 90s AD, it's during the mm-hmm. first century. And so then it, we try to place the Gospel of John and the letters of John around that. Um, the Gospel of John and the letters of John, for reasons that we mentioned, they seem to deal with second century Christian problems means we tend to place them later in the first century. And so the Gospel of John may be around 90 to 100, right? Kind of at the turn of the century when these important Christological questions of divinity and humanity are being asked. And John is very specific. He's like, look, I was there. I am an eyewitness. The spear went in his side and out came blood and water, right? And I testified to this. That's a big deal for John that he makes in the Gospel. He seems to have this kind of docetic, Jesus was just a spirit, in mind as he writes the Gospel of John. Then the letters of John, um, the dates go anywhere from the 80s, 90s, into the, the first decade of the second century. And so if, if if I were kind of to organize them, I'd probably say Revelation comes first, uh, then the letters of John maybe second, and then the Gospel of John third. But I could easily switch the letters of John and the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John, is out of, out of the four Gospels, is clearly the text that shows the most signs of editing, which means it's probably a work right. under construction. It may have been started in the 60s and 70s, and John just keeps editing it as he goes along to where it reaches its final form. But I would say with all three of these, we'd be comfortable putting them in the second half of the first century, late second half of the first century. Great. Thank you. All right. So with all of that, then I guess we're we're ready to jump in. Okay. And so maybe we just start in uh, chapter one. Seems like a good place yeah, to start. Seems like a good place to start, doesn't it? Right. Uh, with verse one here, right? Again, John starts his gospel with, in the beginning was the word. And so here he says something similar, right? That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled. Right. Again, he's letting us know right from the very beginning what we're going to be tackling here, which is this kind of this nature of Jesus Christ, right? Of the word of life, the incarnation, when the word comes down to earth, the word is made flesh, right? We've handled it, handled him, right? With our hands. And, but again, this is, it's also something that um, has somehow pre-existed from the beginning, okay? Is this divinity and humanity of Jesus. And so you look at something like verse five, Right. He says, this then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And it's almost like John is saying, at least as I read it here, he's saying, look, I'm going to shine a light out there upon what the Christians are teaching. We're going to identify what is true and what is appropriate to say. And we're also going to identify the darkness. Right, we're, we're going to point out, you know, he brings the Antichrist, right, into this. Uh, if you ask most people, they would say the Antichrist pops up in the book of Revelation, but actually it never does. The Antichrist only appears, right, in the in the Johannine letters here. And so um, he says, we, we are going to show for everyone, right, where truth is and where lies are. Then he's going to go through and make this argument about Jesus's nature, but all the while, He's going to be, again, he's, he's got this other task of healing the community. How can I unify the disciples who've been torn apart, right? You can imagine congregations being torn apart by 
uh, these debates that are happening. And some leave the church, right? And and some stick around. But how how do you heal, right? What is it you can that you can use to heal a splintered congregation? And for John, that's going to be love. And so this right. is this really is this is a beautiful epistle on the nature of God's love and how we can apply that love on our uh, kind of on on our kind of a daily regular basis here as we consider our own communities. Good. I, I love that. And, you know, I th- if we have to think about it, that at this point in, in some way or another, and we don't know what the hierarchy is or the state of the church or anything along those lines, but in one way or another, John's the leader of the church at this point, right? He has to at least think of himself as being the shepherd that needs to do something about what's going on. And uh, I, I just can't picture him saying, okay, well, we have these guys that are teaching this false doctrine. Let's just get rid of them. Like just eject them, right? No, he wants to disabuse them of their wrong notions, but save them. And yeah. and those who disagree with them, he wants to say he wants to bring everyone together. And so I I think you're right. And that's in my mind, that's at least part of it. I mean, it's not the only reason, but part of why, and, and maybe we're getting to this in a second, but this idea where he says in verse eight, if if we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. This is a way of saying, Hey, everyone, I may be pointing out that this person's wrong in this way and this person's wrong in this way. We've all got some problems. So let's not worry about what the other person's problem is. Let's just all say, okay, we've all got problems. Let's work with each other and bring each other in. Seems to me to be at least part of what he's doing here. I think more than that, but it's it's part of what he's doing. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think my audience will recognize uh, just in verses one through five, well, and, and seven, I mean, it's like in some ways you're reading the Gospel of John. There are a lot of similar themes, this theme of light and darkness and of, of fellowship and Christ being the creator and so on. Uh, hopefully we continue to recognize those themes. This is very, very similar thematically to a lot of the things we see in the Gospel of John. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I, I, I think you you really have to read both of them kind of with the same mindset. Read the Gospel and read the letters understanding that John is dealing with the same issues. He's trying to come up with a way to help people understand who Jesus is, right? What's at stake when we talk about his divinity and his humanity and how he's seen those questions just crippling, right? The membership that he's dealing with. I mean, the stakes are unbelievably high, right, for John at this point. And to that end, and to, to just address again, the, the competing factions and trying to bring everyone in, I, I think it's worth noting that, uh, the Gospel of John, and I think we see it reflected here in First in John as well. Uh, we talk about a high Christology in in the Gospel of John, right? And by that we mean uh, he is abundantly points out the very divine, very exalted nature of Christ, while at the same time very much pointing out the physicality and mortality of Christ. And uh, and you get both of those themes in a greater degree than you do in the other Gospels. And I think it's because of this very thing you're talking about. He's He's got people who are misunderstanding this both ways. And so in the same writing, he has to convince people he is amazingly divine. And he's also very physical and mortal. And so uh, we saw that in the Gospel of John. Let's look for it here as well. But anyway, I'll, I'll let you take us where you want to go now. Yeah, so maybe we, we go to we, we go to chapter two. Right. And uh, verse verse eighteen, he kind of lets us know again what's what's at stake here. Little children, which is seems to be kind of John's uh, way of of talking about the members of the church, right? They're they're his little children. Um, just is he's kind of in the shepherding role, right? As as the one who's who's been around for a while. It is the last time, and as you have heard that the antichrist shall come. Even now, are there many antichrists whereby we know that it is the last time? 
right? And we tend to talk about the Antichrist as this figure that's going to come at the end of the age. But John seems to have in mind here, look, those who are speaking against Christ, who he is, right? What he means here by by Antichrist. And he seems to see this, this is the, not that this is the last decade of the church's existence, but we're in the last age, so to speak. And this is when things are going to get rough. This is when the adversary is going to be doing everything he can, right, to to um, persuade us that Jesus isn't who he is, and we need to be watchful of that. And I think that advice goes just as much for us today. John's warning us, this is the last age, right? And we need to be careful that when we talk about Jesus, we are talking about him in a way that acknowledges both those natures, his divine nature and his human nature. And again, if you look at the Book of Mormon, if you look at, at people like, you know, Sharon, people like Korahor, this this is exactly what they're doing. They're trying to, you know, dissuade us from un- understanding the true nature of Jesus Christ. And so perhaps John is saying this is this is Satan's big gambit in a way, is not to deny the existence of Jesus, but to deny that he is both human and divine in some fashion. And so with, with that warning, um, we get something like verse uh, verse 22. Right. Who is a liar, but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father, but he that acknowledges the Son hath the Father also. So again, overlapping with the Gospel of John, right? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I and the Father are one. This unity between Father and Son that some of these other Christian leaders seem to be trying to uh, bifurcate in a way Jesus wasn't divine. He was just a human being. We separate the Father from the Son, or we separate Jesus from the Christ, right? However you want to interpret that. Right. You know, is, is is the Christ here this again, this divine element that merges with Jesus, as as people are saying, as people like Serenthus are saying. And John's like, no, you can't say that. Jesus wasn't a human who just merges with this other divine being. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He, the Jesus, the man is also the divine Messiah working together in some fashion. So don't try to separate them. Don't try to make them different. But then he's also, if you go over to uh, chapter four, he turns his attention to that other side, right? To those of you who would just argue that Jesus was divine and not human, you get uh, verse two of chapter four. He says, hereby know ye the spirit of God, Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Okay, those who will agree the divine nature and the human nature of Jesus are one. They are of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is, again, the spirit of Antichrist, where if you've heard that it should come and even now already is in the world. And so both those perspectives, John is saying, those are problematic. And this is, we, we really got to make sure that we we know. It isn't just that it's a, that, that it's, it's a, you know, false doctrine or something like that. John seems to think this is a teaching that could capsize the church. If we want to talk about something like apostasy, right. right? John seems to be saying, this is, this is how apostasy starts with misconceptions about the nature of Jesus. Uh, that's, that's wonderful and powerful. And, you know, something that strikes me, I've never thought of before, but this again makes this become kind of real and applicable for me. Um, John is awfully clear in his this teaching. Like he is not mincing words either about the teaching or about the problems with the teaching, right? That you're not of Christ, you're anti-Christ, 
That's that's pretty clear, right? Mm-hmm. And yet this epistle is laced with more language of love than just about any writing you can find. And uh, and it, it's interesting because as you were doing that, I thought, wow, I see the same kind of thing in the church today as we talk about this uh, teaching or this teaching. We get really clear teachings. No, this is, this is the doctrine. We can't change the doctrine and we're not authorized to change it. But encased in all sorts of language of love. And so it's it's just kind of fun to see that uh, whether we're talking first century AD or 21st century uh, AD, that we've got leaders of the, the church representatives of God who are having to do the same thing in the same way. Yeah. And John, I think, is, is a nice model there, right? He doesn't just come out and say, hey, kick out anybody who's teaching this, the end. Right. right. We'll kind of see with Jude. He, that's kind of the, the tactic he kind of takes. Right. Uh, but uh, with John, he's very careful to say, look, we have to be aware of these things. These are serious. We need to make sure that they don't cause a crisis in the church. But at the same time, he says, we need to remember we are a community. And so we need to understand how God shows his love for us and how we show our love for God. And so, you know, as you were saying earlier, some, some of the most beautiful language about love um, in the uh, in the New Testament comes in the letters of John. And so you look at, you know, back up a little bit, chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, he says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons and daughters of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew not him. Right? God loved us. He didn't just send us down t- to earth to um, just to live lives, right? He he adopts us into his family. We're his children. Okay? Right. And that's not because he owes us anything or he's obligated. He does that out of love. Okay? And then he's going to say in chapter uh, four. And, and, and maybe I'll just add while you're on that. Like, I, I, I like how you translated that. I, I think if, just when we look at the way uh, pronouns and, and, and nouns and genders and so on are used, that it's a very realistic translation to say that we should be called the children of God. Uh, or the next verse, beloved, now we are the children of God. I think that's a realistic translation uh, rather than just sons. And uh, and that's also a theme that we see in the book of John a lot. But anyway, sorry, keep going. Absolutely. And so in uh, if we go to chapter four, right, he, uh, he says, verse nine, in this was manifested the love of God toward us because God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him here in his love. Not that we loved God, right? But he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the payment, right, for our sins. Because I love it. If God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. And that's his point here. And he's going to say this fairly explicitly, that you can't say, I love God, but I hate my neighbor. So right. that doesn't work. If you love God, then you love his children. That's how, that's how love works. And uh, it's right around... Right around to verse uh, verse 20 of chapter 4, right? He says, if a man mm-hmm. say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? Right? And so for, for John, your love for God hinges upon your love for your neighbor. They are one and the same. And even in verse 21, if we follow this commandment we have from him, and he was there when this commandment was given to love each other, right? That he who loveth God love his brother also. That's there's no from God, John and God. There's no way around this issue. Yeah, and uh, and for you know if if you look at the Greek here, the word here for love is agape, 
yeah. which in Greek is self-sacrificing love, right? Greater love hath no man than this, and he laid down his life for that of his friends. That's the type of love that, that John has in mind here, right? God, Jesus literally sacrifices himself for us, and for us to be truly be disciples of him, of our Heavenly Father, are we willing to demonstrate that same type of self-sacrificing love for our neighbors, for our community, for our friends, for our family, or for our enemies, right? And it it all for John, I think this all comes back. Kind of the the pivot point of all this is chapter four, verse eight, which to me is one of the most sublime verses, right, in all the New Testament. He says, "He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love." Right? We talk so much about, well, is God omniscient? Is He omnipotent? We talk about all these qualities of God. We want how powerful. What are the limits of His knowledge and power and whatnot? But for John, God is God. Because he fully personifies agape, self-sacrificing love. And if we wish to be like unto our Father, right, to follow in his footsteps, become like him, we also must emulate self-sacrificing love as a divine characteristic. Uh, I, I don't think you can say it any better. That's that's powerful, and, and it is. I hope for all of us, when we think of the primary characteristic of God. And it's not that there is really a primary, whatever he is, he is that perfectly. And he is all of the things that he should be. But the first thing that I think is supposed to come to our mind is that God is love. And so John, in John's mind, I think as he looks over the community and says, look, how can we kind of, how can we unify? How can we heal? There's two things he keeps going back to. We, we demonstrate, if God demonstrates his love for us, through calling us his children, adopting us, sending his son for us, we show our love for God by keeping the commandments, he says a number of times, and by loving our neighbor. And that's that's how you that's how you, you unify the community, right? It's much like in Moses 7, right? Zion is one heart and one mind. And it seems to be that's what John has in mind here. How can I do that? We keep the commandments. We do what we're asked by the Father out of love, right? And then we also love our neighbor as a reflection of our love for God. Wonderful. And those are the, the two commandments that are associated with love by Christ himself in that those great teachings at the Last Supper that John records, right? Yeah. Uh, if you love me, keep my commandments. Mm -hmm. And uh, this new commandment I give you that as I have loved you, love one another, right? So uh, John highlights them here because he's heard Christ highlight them. And it's, it's nice to see him kind of, he's taking Jesus's teachings and putting them into practice. He sees an opportunity to to take what Jesus has told him and not just adopt it as a, hey, here's a nice insight, but here's actually what it looks like on the ground. I've got a community that needs help. So what do I do? I go back to what Jesus said, keep the commandments, love your neighbor, right? And I'd like to think this story had a happy ending. We don't, we don't know what happens to this community, right? Um, but I like to think that John was able to kind of hold things together at least for a little bit longer right, by virtue of those teachings. But it's, a, again, it's a nice, it's kind of a practice what you preach. Moment for so here's a question I'd like to ask you if it's all right, um, uh, or maybe just kind of explore a little bit with you. We've got in, in verse 10, here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Now, we know the primary commandment under the covenant or under the law is to love God with all our heart, might, mind, and strength, right? That's so yeah. loving God. I don't think he, I don't think he can be saying loving God's not important or we, it's not about whether or not we love God. So he must be saying something else here. 
Uh, and, and let's throw into there and are trying to understand this. Uh, one of my favorite verses ever, um, which uh, verse 19, we love him because he first loved us. So how can we reconcile these ideas uh, that I, I, it is a primary part of our identity as covenant keepers who love God, I would say is one of our primary identities uh, because that's part of, that's the primary element of the covenant. The first, the prime directive, we could almost say, uh, <laughs> if we're going to go Star Trek. Uh, As we but, should, we always should. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, but verse 10, here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. So what uh, w- what are we to make of these? It could appear to be competing ideas. Yeah, I, I wonder if, if John doesn't have in mind here, he doesn't want us to get confused and think that God did something for us because we loved him first, right? And so what he's doing is essentially giving us a reward for our love or something like this. Um, that in reality, God sent his son not as a reward for our love, not because we did something for God, so then God does something for us. He sent his son because first he loved us, right? And so maybe right. he's reminding us that these things don't happen because you know, they're, they're, they're rewards for our love. God has always loved us first and it's up to us whether we respond to that love, but don't think that, uh, don't fall into the trap of thinking that God demonstrates his love only to those who love him first or something like that. He loves all of his children. Maybe there's kind of a, a universal element, a statement to God's love for all his children here or something like that. Wonderful. That's great. And I think it is tied up in, uh, every time he talks about this, he, he talks about, Right. We could go to John 3, 16, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, which is very similar to verse 10 here, um, that from the beginning, before there was any issue about are we loving him or are we not or anything, God loved us so much, he was planning on saving us. And that's why he sent his son, right? That that everything about our existence, our cre- the creation, everything began with and was sparked by God's love for us. And that's why Christ came. And it seems to, whenever John talks about this, it seems to be tied up with, this is the reason he sent Christ because he loves us, Yeah, which ties in with what you were saying, I think very well. So, yeah, I, I wonder if sometimes we fall into, you know, that vending machine metaphor that is used from time to time, yeah. right? That when, when, when we get it, we, we, we get a blessing, it's because we did something in advance and God is responding to our love for him or, uh, the good deeds that we do. And if we pull back and see the big picture, it's that everything that happens is out of God's love, whether we can see it or not. It's not, again, that he's responding to us. He's always been there from the very beginning. It's just a question of when we will recognize that and respond to him. Uh, that's good. I, and I'd say maybe a secondary interpretation application of this, but one that's very real. I think it's part of where the rubber hits the road in our lives, especially in our families and our relations with others, is that uh, our our concentration shouldn't be on whether people love us or whether they are returning our love for us. It's that we love them regardless of, of what they say to us, how they feel about us, how they treat us. And that if we want them, honestly, if you want someone to love you, the first step is love them. Right. I mean, uh, we just uh, that's where everything has to start for us all the time is with loving others. And we'll see whatever they do in return. That's that's not really the point. Yeah. I mean, God loves those who love him. God loves those who hate him. Right. Yeah. And for us, if we want to demonstrate, we want to emulate that full spectrum of love. 
the burden is on us to love those that love us and love those that don't love us. Not, as you say, not wait for them. It's not a reward we give them for showing initiative and loving us first. It's the obligation we have to all of God's children. Right. And we don't stop loving them just because they're treating us poorly yeah. or anything along those lines, which ties right back into what you were talking about earlier, where he keeps telling us, it, it really, you've got to love others. Don't don't talk about being a disciple of Christ if you're not loving others. It, it, those two are not compatible. So, it doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Should we move on to Second John? Sounds good. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. First John, there's again the wonderful, wonderful, wonderful um document. I love First John. Second John seems to I I kind of see all three of these as maybe being delivered at the same time, right? As letters. First John is kind of this longer persuasive essay dealing with a larger problem in the church. Second John seems to be a, a letter addressed to a single congregation. Uh, wherever it is John's writing to, probably from Ephesus, somewhere around Ephesus, right, somewhere in Asia Minor. And then Third John is an individual person, an individual leader in the church who's getting a letter. So we have an individual congregation in Second John, an individual leader in Third John, with First John seeming to be kind of a broader, kind of maybe like a stake letter or something. All the churches in the area need to read this. But a so second we're John, kind of telescoping further in with each. Yeah. Each uh, letter, right? We've got yeah. everybody, specific group, specific individual. That's that's great. I'd never thought of that before. Yeah. And so with the uh, second John, really, it's 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 kind of a condensed version of first John. Here's the highlights. But the main difference is verse one, right? The elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, not I only, but also they that have known the truth, right? The elect lady and her children. Uh, which probably a reference to, again, a congregation, the elect lady, and then the members of that congregation, her children, kind of adopting Old Testament imagery for corporate Israel, right, as as kind of that, that female imagery, mm -hmm. which is kind of nice. Uh, then um, Third John kind of continues this theme of, of the problems in the church. We have a letter written to a man named Gaius uh, by John, and Gaius is doing good stuff i mean there's he, Gaius is not the problem the problem is a man named diotrephes and diotrephes in verse 9 of third john uh john says i wrote unto the church which might be a reference to second john but diotrephes who loveth to have the preeminence among them receiveth us not wherefore if i come i'll remember his deeds which he doeth prating against us with malicious words and not content therewith, neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. And so Diotrephes is this, seems to be this leader in this congregation who's drawn his own lines about what's right and what's wrong. And John finds himself on the other side of it, right? And John says, if I come, I'll, I'll have a chat with him, I'll call him out. But it seems like whenever John says, I send missionaries to Diotrephes, he just won't even open the door. Right. He just he just sends them on their way. And so for me, what what stands out about third John is in second Thessalonians, when Paul predicts in chapter two, he predicts a an apostasia, right, which we translate as a falling away, but is more literally a mutiny, a revolt, a rebellion. He says there's going to be a mutiny in the church. OK, and uh, this is I, I see third John is where we really see a window into that. I mean, John is for all intents and purposes, the head of the church. But you've got some, I don't know what to call them, maybe a, a stake president or a bishop or, 
you know, Elder Scorn president or Rogue some kind of leader or something, right? Who's who's uh, saying no? I I I no longer receive John. Right? John no longer has a place in my congregation. Seems like he's essentially excommunicated the prophet from the church, right? And to me, that 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 that's an apostasia, right? That's a mutiny, yeah. right here. And you saw hints of it in in Paul's letters, where he would say, "Hey, it, it was clear there are people who were teaching Paul's wrong." Yeah. But but this is a different level where like, nah, I'm not even going to have anything yeah. to do with yeah. with the head of the church. Yeah, exactly. And so for me, I mean, when we talk about the apostasy. Right. And sometimes we talk about it as if it's this thing that lasts for three or four hundred years and gradually over time, people just forget the truth. I, I think we're talking by the end of the first century. Right. This is this is done. The church has mutinied because of people like Diotrephes. And it's it's a splintered group and people like John doing their best to hold things together. But to me, this is third John is a snapshot of what that apostasy looks like. Some leaders at some point just stop saying I'm they just I'm done with John. I'm done with the, you know, with the other apostles, whoever's still around. I'm going to do things my own way from here on out. And that's uh, that's it's that the undoing of the unity that Jesus set up so so well in the book of Acts and that Paul tried so hard to maintain. We see it unravel here in third John. So I've, uh, you just caused a question in me that so I, I keep shanghaiing you with questions I've never had before and and you hadn't known we were going to ask. So uh, it, you can we can just edit this out if you don't want to talk about <laughs> it. But, um, you know, I think all the time about the, what we get in First Nephi 13 and 14 <clears throat> and uh, this idea of that plain and precious things plain and precious truths, plain, you know, it's very clear. The first thing he says is that the, the covenant elements of the covenant will be taken out. And I think we can see that uh, very evident, but uh, then there are plain and precious truths taken out. And then it seems like in my view, he starts saying plain and precious things. And that's maybe a combination of both elements of the covenant and truths taken out. And I've typically understood that to mean that there would be like actual things that had been written that, those things were excised out besides uh, things about the covenant that were taken out. But we don't really see evidence of that in the the documentary trail of the writings. And so it seems like it may be when he talks about truths being taken out, it may not be that people have actually just, uh, well, there are probably places where they changed wording or they cut this thing out. I mean, there, there's probably some of that, but it may be more we've got, uh, the same thing, but we are just going to interpret it differently. And that takes the truth out of it. And that that may be what uh, this fellow here is doing. Gaius, was that his name? I've forgotten. But... Diotrephes. Diotrephes, you're right. Sorry, Gaius is the good guy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. So uh, Diotrephes, um, which just sounds like it's an evil name. But anyway, um, but uh, that that may be what he's doing and others. I, I think that's what was happening when Paul was saying these guys are are saying that I'm wrong and they're teaching falsehoods. It's it's not that they're taking uh, things that were written and getting rid of it. They're they're interpreting them differently, and so the truth is taken out regardless of what was written. Uh, what's your take on that? No, I, I I think that's absolutely right. That's how I read First Nephi thirteen and fourteen. Is again, if you look at the textual history of the New Testament, it's hard to see places where just you know entire references to the temple or the three degrees of glory or, you know, the things that we consider to be the restored gospel were just cut out by malicious scribes or something like that. And so, you know, in first Nephi 14, you know, Nephi seems to describe the book of revelation 
as plain and precious and most easy to be understood. <laughs> yeah. Right. And most of us would look at that and say, well, that that makes no sense. The book of Revelation is impossible to understand. Maybe it's been changed. Maybe that's what happened is, you know, somebody came along and rewrote the book of Revelation. And I would say that 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 makes even less sense because in, in my mind, in the first century, yeah, for someone like Nephi, sure, the book was plain and precious and most easy to be understood. But over time, we've lost the tools to be able to interpret it. And so to me, that's the plain and precious truths are lost, not because they're physically removed, but because the tools and keys that help us interpret them have somehow been lost to us, uh, and perhaps through people like Diotrephes who insist on their own interpretation. You know, in 2 Corinthians, Paul mentions these super apostles who, who were promoting another Christ, right? Again, it's right. their own interpretation of who Jesus is that Paul has a hard time with. It's not that they're taking away knowledge of Jesus. They're just saying, here's who Jesus really is. And so, yeah, I, I think it's more about interpretation and uh, the tools that have been lost over time than it is text that's been lost over time. So, uh, and I, I would agree. So it seems to me then that the corollary is that in our day, we run the risk of the same thing happening. And the only thing to prevent it from happening are people who are successors to John, who's in the middle of trying to prevent this from happening, right? And, and yeah. so we will take teachings, we'll take things about Christ and so on and interpret them incorrectly if it were not for having prophets who would tell us, no, this is the right way to interpret this. So, I mean, just and my own, I'll, I'll give one personal example. I've been teaching about the covenant for a long time and, and using Mosiah 18. I've often taught that at baptism, we covenant that we'll, uh, you know, become the children of God, bear witness of him and be called in his name. And that we'll mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need of comfort. But very recently, uh, through a couple of channels, uh, through things President Nelson has said to the correlation folks, um, through uh, a talk just given at BYU-Idaho by uh, Elder Renland and so on, uh, they've been telling us, no, actually the covenant, all of that that we're saying about the covenant and God is correct, but we don't covenant to mourn with those that mourn. Uh, our covenant is with God, and then mourning with those that mourn, covering those that stand in need of comfort are what we do as a result of having been changed by God. Um, and so it's kind of a little bit like what we're reading here with John, right? So there's there's one place where, uh, with the best of intent and the best of my understanding, I was teaching one thing, and now I'm uh, I'm being you know we're being corrected by uh, prophets uh, because they can. And honestly, I think I've seen places where President Nelson has said pretty close to what I was saying earlier, and I, I I'm just going to assume he's gotten clarification on this or something, or maybe I was misunderstanding what he was saying earlier. But uh, it seems like we're getting clarification. Uh, as so that we don't misinterpret uh, the doctrine, and that's the the beauty of having prophets today. And that, that's just a simple issue. There are more important things. I mean, I don't know how it would lead us all to hell if we felt like we were under covenant to uh, help other people. But uh, uh, there are things that really can be problematic that we can interpret as we say, well, Christ uh, was, you know, did this. So that means we should do this. And then we have prophets to say, actually, this is what the doctrine is. And that's our safeguard is having people like John in our own day. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm glad you told me that about Mosiah 18, because I, I teach the same thing myself. I so think I'm almost gonna, everyone has. I have to yeah. make a few corrections because uh, I particularly like that interpretation, but I'm glad to know that there's been some clarification. But again, you mentioned earlier uh, DNC 93, Right. I mean, I think one of the things that makes it so easy for you and I to have a conversation about the humanity and divinity of Jesus 
is we have an interpretive lens through something like DNC 93 and through the Book of Mormon in Alma 7 that lines up these pieces for us where we feel like we can have, okay, we can talk about the humanity divinity in a responsible way because we can apply that lens to the New Testament, right? And and kind of and arrange things in a way that uh, we feel is appropriate. And if we didn't have the Book of Mormon, if we didn't have the DNC, if we didn't have the Restoration, it's a bunch of puzzle pieces that are scattered around and we're trying to make the best sense of them we can. But uh, yeah, we have living prophets who can say, oh, that's actually a corner piece. That's not a middle piece, right? And you kind of just help us, oh, that, okay, that, that actually makes a lot more sense that way. And so as, as a as a student of the scripture, someone who loves the scriptures, who loves the, the background and the history and the context, I deeply value that interpretive lens because it helps me to be able to make sense of a lot of things that I'm not sure how I'd make sense of otherwise. Uh, wonderful. Well, uh, I, I, all right. I guess let's let's keep going. I, I keep derailing us, and uh, you may have more you want to talk about. Well, should we uh, should we turn our attention to Jude? I don't want to. Yeah, no one ever does, so that would be I know, great. That's the thing. I feel bad if we gave Jude the short shrift. It's kind of the shiblon of the New Testament, right? He just that's kind of right. Of, of the letters of John and the Book of Revelation and stuff. So, so uh, with Jude, um, we have one of two letters written by a brother of Jesus Christ, uh, James being the other. Uh, we've, we know that Jesus has at least four brothers, right? James and Joseph and Simon, uh, then Judah, right? Um, who is kind of gets, ang- in Greek becomes Judas, and probably not to, uh, in, in an attempt to avoid confusion with the other Judas, we just simply call him Jude. And uh, you can see in verse one of Jude, you know, he's Jude, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, which is probably just kind of a humble nod. He's letting us know who he is. But he doesn't want to come right out and say, hey, I'm Jesus's brother or something like that. And uh, we, we don't really know much about what happens to Jesus's brothers after, um, really even before. But uh, after the, uh, the beginning of the Christian church, James, we're told, becomes Bishop of Jerusalem, has some direct interaction with Paul and others. We don't really know anything about Jude. We don't know where Jude ends up. This letter could be written during the 40s. It could be written during the 90s. Right? There's nothing that really ties it down to any specific time period. Uh, we do know that uh, there's a story about the Emperor Domitian, who reigns, who rules Rome from 81 to 96 AD, and he decides one day he's gonna he wants to kind of get rid of all the the lineage of David, any potential successors, right, to the Davidic throne that might be rivals to his own claim as emperor. He wants to get rid of anybody out there who's uh, who has that claim, and he finds out that Jude, who's Jesus's brother, has two grandchildren, and so he summons these grandchildren into his presence and says, "Hey." Or is it true that you're from this Davidic line? You know, do you think that you're rivals to the throne? And they show him their hands that are just blistered and calloused from all the times they spent in the field and said, our kingdom is in the next world. It's not here. And then Domitian lets him go. Right. And it might just be a completely apocryphal story, but it shows that Jesus's descendants, you know, seem to have important a, a place. Right. Well, uh, in, not not Jesus's descendants, uh, Jude's Jesus descendants, descendants, right? Sorry, yeah, sorry, sorry. So yeah, yeah, Jesus's family. I'll just say that Jesus's right, family. Okay, yeah, Jesus' descendants. That's a whole other. That's a whole other podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there, there's a can of worms. We'll let someone else open. Yes. Yeah. 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 So thank you for that correction. Before I got a lot of angry emails. Um, yeah. So Jesus's family, right, has an impact on the early church, perhaps more than we sometimes recognize. And so uh, one of those, of course, this letter written by a brother named Jude. Uh, the point of this letter seems to be likened to um, the letters of John. There seems to be a 
a group of of Christians, a faction in the church that it wants to introduce um, problematic practices. And so if you look at verse four of Jude, uh, he says, there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men. And here's the key problem, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And so there seems to be a group of Christians who are teaching something about um, licentiousness, right? That, And perhaps this builds upon, you know, there's this misunderstanding of Paul that we see in Romans, that people are going out saying that, you know, now because of grace, okay, we can sin and do whatever we want to, because the more you sin, the more grace you get or something like that. Yeah. And we do or, know that- Or maybe it's equivalent. I, I have heard recently- of some folks in some of the high schools saying, well, you know, it's okay if we do all of this, we just need to repent in time to go on a mission. Uh, so, cause we can be forgiven. So let's just do all sorts of, and, and the list of things they're ready to do are, are not good. Um, yeah. And they feel like it's no problem. We can be forgiven yeah. and you can be forgiven, but that's a problematic uh, way of looking at this. So. Uh, absolutely. And uh, this, this actually seems to be a, a larger problem in the Christian church. We, we know of a group in the second century called the Carpocratians, who seem to to feel that um, now in this new kingdom, right, uh, that's been set up, there's no law of Moses, there's no more restrictions, you can just kind of do whatever you want to, and they would have these extravagant parties, and that I won't get into details and things like that, um, but uh, it's that same kind of mentality, right, that the gospel opens the door for lasciviousness and licentiousness, because we're no longer under the law of Moses, we no longer have it set out for us, right, uh, in more in-depth what we're supposed to do. And so Jude comes in, and um, this is kind of the hellfire and brimstone talk of the uh, the New Testament. He makes it clear with plain, without a doubt, God is very much a God of justice. He is not going to sit back and allow people to commit sin and do whatever they want to, and then just say, okay, well, here's, you know, here's your get-out-of-jail-free card or something like that, right? Justice is very real in this church just as much as mercy is. And so the way he's going to do this is he's going to give us a, a series of examples from the Old Testament about people or groups of people who messed up, did things they shouldn't have done, and how God did not let them off the hook. And so we, you know, we start in verse uh, verse five. He says, "I will put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed them that believed not." Right? It seems to be kind of a reference to. Exodus 32 or Numbers 14, somewhere in there, where the Israelites are saying, hey, we we want to go back to Egypt, right? We're done with this. And so God comes in and doesn't just again pat him on the head and tell him, don't do it again. He, he's a God of justice, right? He destroys them that believed not. Um, verse 6, the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of that great day. Uh, a curious story, uh, probably a reference to Genesis 6, 1 through 4, right? These these angels who look down and see these daughters of men, and they go down and uh, have relationships with them, and their offspring are the giants. And it leads to all these kind of um, stories that pop up during Second Temple Judaism about these rogue groups of angels, okay, who, who, do, do, who do these things, and uh, God... Uh, punishes them okay as a result 
And uh, again, he doesn't just say, well, it's okay, don't do it again. They are in everlasting chains. God takes sin, okay, very seriously. In verse 7, Sodom and Gomorrah. Again, um, giving themselves over to fornication, going after strange flesh, or set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Right? Sodom and Gomorrah, what happened? God didn't let them off the hook. God came in and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, right, for in Genesis 19, for um, for their deeds. And and he continues on. Interestingly, he, he draws on, uh, well, he, and he did this in verse 6 as well, <clears throat> things that for him he clearly con considers part of the scripture uh, that are not part of our canon. Um, as he draws on different traditions, right, to keep teaching the same thing. And I love verse 8, where he's comparing what's happening in his day to Sodom and Gomorrah and so on, the filthy dreamers defile the flesh and so on. Uh, but he's going to keep coming to example after example, using Bilaam and others as well. But, yeah, Cain, Korah, right? Cain, who, you know, um, obviously convinces people to, to sin, Okay, murder somebody himself. Balaam, who uh, kind of sells out the children of Israel, right? Yeah. Gets uh, an, another interesting uh, story in the Old Testament, right? And uh, with the Moabite women. And then Korah, who leads a rebellion against Moses, right? And again, right. God does not have a problem punishing those who commit sin. And so for those of you who think just because you're Christian and you have access to grace and repentance— Hey, don't think, well, it's okay if I do it because I can just repent before I go on a mission. Uh, Jude would have something else to say. And uh, then, yeah, maybe we should spend a little bit of time on these two kind of non-canonical passages here. Jude doesn't necessarily seem to have a sense of canonical consciousness, right? That there is an established canon of, yeah. you know, 39 Old Testament books and 27 New Testament books. For him, well, there's probably not at this time. All, yeah, there, yeah, there's all this stuff, right? The New Testament canon is not going to be set for another 300 years. And, and the, there's not really an Old Testament canon either. I mean, you look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, they've got all sorts of stuff in there that won't end up making it into the canon. I don't think the idea of a canon has been established yet. And so he so he can do something like verse 9. He can bring a story, right, that isn't part of our canon. It seems to be part of a text called the Assumption of Moses, where Michael and Satan are arguing over the body of Moses, right? Moses's funerals got a couple loose ends. We don't know where he's buried. So what happened to the body? Right. And so Michael and Satan are arguing over uh, what should happen to it. And um, the moral of the story here is that he says, Michael, when contending with the devil, disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation. Even though Michael is completely in the right and he knows he's completely in the right and Satan's completely in the wrong. Michael chooses not to condemn the devil. Why? Because that's God's responsibility. God brings judgment. So be careful. There's almost a warning for us. It's not our job to bring judgment per se on somebody. God is perfectly capable of bringing his own judgment upon people. And then uh, verse 14 and 15, we get a quotation from another non-canonical text. This one, First Enoch, right, about mm -hmm. how uh, Enoch also the sentence from Adam prophesied, saying, The Lord cometh with 10,000 of his saints to do what? To execute judgment upon all to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Right? These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts. Their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. But, beloved, remember ye the words 
right, which were spoken. He brings it back to Jesus Christ, as did John. Okay, He told you there were going to be mockers in the last times. So again, we have this kind of emphasis on this is the final age, right, where the stakes are high. We need to make sure we're making the right decisions. Uh, the mockers in the last times should walk after their own ungodly lusts. Okay, We've got to do better than that. Verse 20. Well, and, and maybe I'm just oh, going to, uh, I, I think this is great, but uh, I hope the audience is noticing his emphasis on ungodliness, right? He does not like that which is not godly. And that's really this uh, concept of holiness we've talked about so often and that I think was highlighted in First Peter. But uh, the notion that we are supposed to become more godly, less worldly, but these guys are becoming not only worldly but particularly ungodly like they're accelerating the opposite direction yeah and yeah, that's that's, that's his uh his emphasis all of these things are the things that propel you away from god rather than becoming more like god so with yeah. all that in mind i think that sets the the stage for uh verses uh 20 and 19 fits into that same uh idea and then 20 it, it kind of transitions us here so yeah. And I think you could actually look at some of the stories he mentions from the Old Testament specifically as problems with boundary crossing, yeah. right? Going from holiness to unholiness specifically. And exactly. so I think, I think that's a theme he had. I'm glad you brought it up. I think that's something he has in mind from right from the beginning. But I love how he ends this, right? He Again, he, he doesn't just say, look, re repent or you're all going to hell. Okay, it's more nuanced than that. And so he says, look, we, we have a responsibility to build a community Okay, and to keep our community strong, and here's how you do it. right? Verse 20, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourself in the love of God. Okay, so he's just given this long discourse on justice and judgment and how God is going to come in and clean house when he needs to, but at the same time, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life in the love of God. And I love these next two verses. He says, of some have compassion making a difference. Others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. And it's almost like Jude recognizes that not everybody responds the same way to the same type of lesson. I, th I think of my own children, right? There, there are a couple of my kids that the only way they respond is to give them the threat of punishment. Okay. Clean your room or else. Right. And and it's 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 that it's that kind of the 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 threat hanging over their heads. Okay, I, I guess this is serious. I guess I better do it. But I have a couple of other kids who will just completely turtle up if I say anything like that. They yeah. need the language of love. Hey, we love you, you're great kids. We would appreciate it if you would keep your room clean. Yeah, right? for, for them, even saying like your room's not as clean as yeah. it's supposed to be is too much. And they're it gonna they're, they're they're gonna feel overwhelmed with guilt yeah. and whatever, right? And so some members of our community, I think they respond well if you say, hey, that's a step too far. You, you, you can't do that. And they say, oh, okay, I didn't realize that. And there's other people who need to be reminded through love, okay, of how much Heavenly Father loves them, how much Jesus loves them, and be and, and deliver that same message, but in a way that they'll respond to. And so I, I think Jude gives us a nice lesson here on how to interact. Don't just come in with one way of, of teaching, right? We need to be a little bit more malleable, a little bit more adaptable to different people in our community who have different needs, different circumstances are going to respond in different ways. Some save with fear, others save with compassion. Good. And know, know your community well enough that you know which one it is. That's the challenge I think that Jude leaves us with. Do we know uh, our neighbors good. that well? Very good that, that we have to 
to to look for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ into eternal life and help others see that some by compassion, others with fear. That's that's great. I'd never really seen that contrast before. That's powerful. And so I I think one of the the lessons and it's kind of the takeaway from Judah reminded of of uh, Elder Uchtdorf, right, where he said um, that Latter-day Saints, we seek for truth wherever we can find it, right? And I, I, I look at somebody like Jude, and again, we don't want to make a big deal about what the canon looked like at the time, but in retrospect, okay, he's not limiting himself to what is considered canon. There are stories that we would consider canon, and there are stories we wouldn't consider canon, that he's kind of saying have have a value, have an importance. And so I, I, as I kind of project that into in the 21st century, what does that matter to us now? I, I wonder if the lesson would be we need to make sure that we don't put God in a box. Right? We don't we need to make sure that we don't say we will only listen to God under certain circumstances. There is truth inside the box and there is truth outside the box. Right. And the trick is to be able to realize where that truth is. I, I could find truth in reading the scriptures and I can find truth in something like Les Mis, right? As we as we've heard quoted in general conference before. Okay. Um, there's and so don't limit how God can speak to us. Don't sit there and say, well, if it doesn't come from the scriptures, okay, then I'm not going to listen to it. Well, maybe God shows us truth in other ways. That's why we have something like the Holy Spirit. That's why we have the light of Christ. That's why we have living prophets. Right, to help us see there's truth in places we might not expect to find it. Very good. That's wonderful. Well, this is this is powerful stuff. Thank you for, for being with us, Nick. Uh, these are, I, like I said, I love the epistles of John, and I like the epistle of Jude also. Um, but uh, so I, I now love it. So there we go. But uh, this is this is wonderful, and uh, we thank you for helping us through this. Hey, thanks for giving the opportunity. I'm always happy to come talk to somebody about the scriptures. So. Ah. Well, and our audience will be able to hear from you in just a couple of weeks on the book of Revelation. Uh, I'll remind them that next week uh, we'll start the book of Revelation. We've got actually two episodes um, for the, that first week of Revelation. We've got uh, Dr. Andrew Skinner, who will do kind of an overview of the book of Revelation and of the first, uh, say, four or five chapters. And then uh, Dr. Phil Allred, uh, who is just going to drill down on one particular chapter with me. And uh, it's it's great fun stuff. So we'll uh, get our audience excited about that. And then they can hear from uh, others later. Nick is later, uh, Jason Combs and so on. So it's going to be uh, wonderful stuff as we go through the book of Revelation. Uh, I'm going to do, I haven't done this for a while, but I'm going to do a, a little short cast uh, also. So you'll have a second episode on this week to listen to uh, about other topics. And uh, we also have a couple of special things to ask of you or to, to inform you of and hopefully a way to be involved with you. Uh, we want to have an interaction with you. Doing this, doing gospel things with each other is is half the, the fun is to do it with each other. And so we'd love for you to email us at the scriptures are real at gmail.com. Uh, questions and comments, things you'd like to discuss. Uh, we're going to have an episode where we just answer questions. So uh, things you'd like to discuss, things you'd like to, to have us talk about or any comments that you have. 
uh, we just love to hear from you. So email us at thescripturesareal at gmail.com. We'd also like to uh, invite you to consider this time of year, especially on, on what we call Giving Tuesday, but it really could happen at any time, uh, to consider donating to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. Uh, this is something that we do out of great love, and we have uh, some people who have donated generously to help us be able to continue to do this. But as we're trying to to do more and to expand and and just keep going, we uh, it, it does cost money. And so uh, we are hoping you'd consider giving uh, for Giving Tuesday, giving something to the scriptures are real, whatever you think you could give, if it was uh, $5 or $500 or $5,000, whatever you think you could give. Um, and we've worked with, uh, we have a partnership with uh, Spark, that's the Society for the Preservation of Ancient Religious Cultures, so it's Spark with a C. You've heard us do joint uh, podcasts or broadcasts with them before, and we'll do some more in the future. And so uh, we've done these these joint ones, and so uh, they're a 501c3 organization, uh, so your donation could be tax deductible. Uh, so you can go to sparkproject.org. So that's remember Spark with a C, S-P-A-R-C, sparkproject.org. And uh, you can uh, donate there. You can use, if I remember right, you can use Venmo or PayPal or other ways. And just make a note that you'd like for that uh, donation to go to The Scriptures Are Real, and you can uh, help us continue to do what we're doing. So we'd take, you know, any $5 donation is helpful, uh, or whatever it is that you think you could afford. Consider doing that for Giving Tuesday, and it will be tax deductible for you uh, as we uh, continue this partnership with Spark, and they help us with some of our uh, episodes, and so that, that will work out. Uh, so, we would love to hear from you uh, in your emails, and we would uh, love it if you considered us as part of your giving uh, at this time of year, especially on Giving Tuesday, but really any time would work. Thank you. Then we want to remind you, if you've uh, enjoyed this episode, uh, share it with someone else. Uh, email them, text them about it, but you can also share, depending on the different platforms, by rating, reviewing, leaving comments, likes, subscribing, downloading, all of those things uh, help share these things. As Nick and I did this because we love it, but we also hope that as many people as possible will be able to hear about it. And so we rely on your help for that. So thank you, Nick, and thanks to our audience. And uh, most especially, we we thank uh, our Father in Heaven for His Son, Jesus Christ, and for uh, all of His representatives that have written and given us these wonderful, powerful teachings uh, from which we can learn. Amen. 